General Townsend recently put out a statement saying it was absurd for journalists and researchers to claim there was this US shadow war in Somalia. But of course, that's exactly what the war in Somalia has been for so many years, a shadow war where so little information was given. A statement from AFRICOM, the US-Africa command led by General Stephen Townsend. February 2nd, 2020. The U.S.-Africa Command conducted an airstrike targeting an al-Shabaab terrorist in the vicinity of Jalib, Somalia. The statement says, We currently assess no civilians were injured or killed as a result of this strike. This is the language of war that we're used to. Date, location, casualties. And we hear these statements a lot out of Somalia. But what happens when the statements from the top don't match the reality from the ground? They told me that they have killed one Al-Shabaab militant and wounded another one. And that was something not true. And it was a misleading information. This is a story about that disconnect and how it impacts a U.S. conflict that's on the rise. And with everything else that's going on in the world, increasingly away from the headlines. I'm Kevin Hurton, filling in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. There's a lot of things about the U.S. airstrikes in Somalia that stand out. One, they've been going on since 2007. That's 13 years of airstrikes. And in that time, the U.S. has admitted to just four civilian casualties. Until 2019, that number was zero. I'm an investigative reporter for Al Jazeera, and this is news to me. Since Donald Trump took office, the U.S. has made big public efforts to get out of foreign entanglements. As a candidate for president, I loudly pledged a new approach. Great nations do not fight endless wars. But there have been more U.S. airstrikes in Somalia this year than in the entire eight years of the Obama administration. So this disconnect between what's being said and what's happening on the ground, it matters. And it may even be working against the U.S. in Somalia. We're talking today to three people who are all working to understand the civilian harm from U.S. airstrikes. They all mentioned that to understand what's happening in Somalia today, you need to know about this airstrike on February 2nd because of what happened next. My name is Muhammad Osman. I work for the official news agents of the Somali federal government. Mohammed lives in Mogadishu. But his hometown is in Jalip district, an area that's controlled by the armed group Al-Shabaab. On February the 2nd, on Sunday evening, there was an airstrike which hit some members of my relatives. They had no linkage with Al-Shabaab militants. They were all civilians. Muhammad's relatives were sitting down for a family dinner in their home. Then, around 8 p.m., came the bomb that upended their lives. They were having a dinner together. There was only my brother-in-law, his mother, and three of his daughters. So four of them was hit by a missile from an AI strike. His elder daughter, who was about 17, was seriously injured and died on the spot. The next day, Mohammed says it was difficult to have the funerals because of the constant warplanes overhead. It's a story that's played out in Somalia many times before. But there was one difference. 
While his family was trying to bury their loved ones, Mohammed was in the capital, Mogadishu, at a workshop on counterterrorism in Somalia. Also there was the U.S. military, AFRICOM. So in the middle of the program, I raised my hand and told about how when a military operation is happening in Somalia, that Somalia or AFRICOM often talk about the Al-Shabaab or terrorists, not the civilian casualty. Mohammed says he told them what's shared with the media is not the reality on the ground. Because the night before was the night that my relatives were, were bombarded by the USA strikes. And that is what I said in the workshop. Mohammed called it a first. A relative of a US airstrike survivor stood in front of AFRICOM and the Somali government and confronted them directly. He could feel the tension in the room. They were not uh, very pleased about how I broke the silence and told something unexpected to be said in the workshop. So uh, a guy from AFRICOM office said, sorry, uh, Muhammad, to what you have said, but as a U.S., we often try our best to avoid civilian casualties. This This is his comment. But he said he couldn't be satisfied with what he heard that day. It was... It was very devastating because this is not a single incident which happened to me alone, but it often happens in Somalia and it is never reported. Such mistakes are not one or two or three. This confrontation between Mohammed and AFRICOM wasn't supposed to happen. Civilian victims of airstrikes are usually not relatives of government journalists who can speak truth to power. That job usually falls to people like Abdullahi Hassan, My name is Abdullahi Hassan. I am the Somalia researcher at Amnesty International. He spent the last two years tracking down people whose voices don't usually reach AFRICOM ears. We're going to talk a lot about civilian casualties in Somalia, which is an area of your expertise. But I'd I'd love to start with talking about civilian life in parts of Somalia controlled by al-Shabaab. What is life like for your average person there? So the country is currently divided in territories that is held by the government and territories that that are controlled by al-Shabaab. Abdullahi says they're estimated to be around seven to 8,000 soldiers, and they're well-equipped. The government has been trying to improve the security situation in the country, but then al-Shabaab still controls large swaths of the country. In those areas controlled by al-Shabaab, he says people live a normal life most of the time. Of course, they live in fear, especially those who don't support al-Shabaab. Life is more difficult because al-Shabaab are trying to, you know, control the population using, you know, strict Islamic traditions. They forcefully recruit children. Most of, of, of the people are very poor people uh, who have been living in a conflict situation for, for more than 30 years. It's not just the Shabaab-held areas that are in conflict. The government-held areas are also under constant threat of attack. Once again, the city of Mogadishu is living through the aftermath of an attack. And once again, those responsible are al-Shabaab fighters. The massive blast killed at least 500 Somalis, injured hundreds more. It's been described as the largest explosion in Somalia's troubled history and the worst attack since 9-11 in the U.S. This was the moment a second explosion hit the Daya Hotel in central Mogadishu. Attacks like that don't make for an easy place for human rights research. 
you never know when the next attack might happen. One of Amnesty's own reports calls the environment, quote, extraordinarily hostile to that kind of work. Abdullahi says a big challenge is simply getting on the ground. Number one is a question of access. I'm based here in Nairobi. Um, to come up with verifiable information, you need to go uh, to the ground and speak with witnesses. You know, double check what people are telling you. But none of that is even possible because Al-Shabaab won't allow visits from human rights researchers. Actually, Abdullahi says that it's even risky to move around Mogadishu. So what he usually does is confine himself to his hotel and asks his interviewees to come to him. So he literally go to Mogadishu, stay in one hotel for five, six, seven or ten days. That's not the only obstacle he faces. Al-Shabaab banned smartphones and internet, so it's tough to get photos and videos for evidence. And people are afraid. They're risking death by speaking to him. But despite all of that, Amnesty was able to uncover a small number of civilian casualties from U.S. airstrikes, which AFRICOM denied. Remember, when the report came out, the U.S. had admitted to exactly zero civilian casualties in Somalia. But then two weeks later, they come out to say that they have killed two civilians in one single airstrike in April 2018. So that was the first time AFRICOM have ever admitted to have killed civilians in Somalia. What was your reaction when they finally did admit to killing civilians? We actually, we, we knew they were killing civilians, but then we were surprised that they will only admit to few, to such few numbers. We interviewed more than 180 individuals in Somalia, eyewitnesses, since 2017. And I always asked the question whether they were ever contacted by AFRICOM or by another U.S. official. And none of them said they were ever contacted. Meanwhile, Abdullahi has done extensive investigations, contacting witnesses with family members, with relatives, with clan elders, with government officials. You know, people like us who understand the language are able to conduct all these interviews and compare them with other videos and photographs and geolocate exact location of these airstrikes. And in most cases, identify the exact weapons that are used. We are beyond certain that whatever we have is the actual truth. But then, Abdullahi says, they share that information with AFRICOM. And the response they usually get is that AFRICOM relies on intelligence and assessments that are not available to non-military organizations. But then when we share such information with AFRICOM, that's where they say, whatever you guys are saying is false, is unsubstantiated. Those people who are Shabab members and we killed them. Case closed. And in the rare cases where they have admitted uh, to killing civilians, it is very strange that they have not even reached out to the families and they had to, to give them reparation or any form of compensation. Abdullahi says in the single incident that AFRICOM admitted to last year, they have yet to reach out to the family. I, I was in touch with them last week and the family told me that they were very upset that the U.S. military are not reaching to them and they are looking for other means of getting to them. To understand what led to this impasse in the first place, we have to go back a bit and look at the timeline of U.S. involvement in Somalia. 
The worst U.S. casualties yet in Somalia, forcing the Pentagon to send reinforcements into what has become an all-out urban war. October 3rd, 1993, 18 troops killed. Some of their bodies dragged through the streets of Mogadishu. The incident, called Black Hawk Down, has haunted U.S. military and diplomatic policy ever since. We're not going to go back quite that far, though that disaster still impacts U.S. reluctance towards troops on the ground in Somalia. We're just going back about a decade or so. And the timeline also tracks the evolution of warfare itself and the scope of civilian harm. We'd had a period where militaries had begun claiming that modern warfare was now so precise that civilians weren't being harmed anymore. But that wasn't matching out what was being heard by journalists on the ground. Chris Woods is the founder and director of Air Wars, a group that monitors civilian harm in conflict. My own organization believes at least 70, 70 civilians have been killed by AFRICOM actions or U.S. actions, broader U.S. actions in Somalia in the past 13 years. It's around 40 airstrikes this year. I have to say that's also a relatively small number compared to the other major campaigns the U.S. wages. But it's beginning more and more to resemble the more conventional wars the U.S. is fighting elsewhere. So the interesting thing about this story is that while U.S. involvement in other wars has been decreasing, in Somalia, it's actually increased. When I first began reporting on U.S. strikes in Somalia a decade ago, the U.S. policy was say nothing. The CIA refused even to confirm or deny the existence of the campaign. The Obama administration dismissed all claims of civilian harm. Terrorist groups like al-Shabaab offer nothing but death and destruction and have to be stopped. We've got more work to do. I think the attitude had been, up until about 2014, that you could conduct a strike with, with relatively little blowback. But I think over time, the issue of civilian harm had become so contentious that the administration introduced rule change that said a strike couldn't be taken in places like Iraq, Yemen, Somalia, Pakistan, unless there was a near certainty of no civilians being killed. And that was a welcome change that definitely led to a sharp reduction in reported civilian deaths. And then, as so many things did, it all changed under President Trump. In 2017, the Trump administration designated Somalia an Area of Active Hostility, AAH. That loosened the rules about when strikes could take place and who could be targeted. Here's former AFRICOM Commander General Thomas Waldhauser speaking to the U.S. Congress. It's very important and very helpful for us to have a little bit more flexibility, a little bit more timeliness in terms of decision-making process, and it allows us to prosecute targets in a more rapid fashion. There was a phrase used by uh, a couple of officials during the Obama administration of mowing the grass, the idea that many of these strikes were just trying to keep the command structures down in groups like al-Shabaab, but they weren't really changing anything. I think we have seen a strategic shift under Trump, and the strikes seem much more focused now on denying al-Shabaab territory or supporting Somali ground actions to drive al-Shabaab out of the territory that they still hold. And in that way, it much more resembles a conventional war now under Trump than it did under Obama when it was more of a, a counterterrorism kind of campaign. Now, it may look like a war and it may sound like a war, but saying we're at war is something the Trump administration is going to great lengths to avoid. Hence, workarounds like area of active hostility. I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't characterize that we're at war. I mean, we're, it's specifically designed for us not to own that. 
But those designations and definitions matter little to the people on the ground. As the U.S. campaign against al-Shabaab has intensified, Shabaab has also been more specifically targeting the camps, the intelligence hubs that the U.S. and Somali forces have been using to wage war on them, and sometimes very successfully. There have been several U.S. ground forces killed in Somalia in recent years, and in January of 2020, in, a, in an audacious attack, Shabab struck an airfield in Kenya, which was central to the U.S. drone campaign. The U.S. military has confirmed that one of its service members and two U.S. military contractors were killed. The commander of U.S. Africa Command issued this warning of, quote, pursuing those responsible for this attack and al-Shabaab who seeks to harm Americans and U.S. interests. So it is a war between the United States and Shabab, however it might be characterized. The question I had after hearing all of this was pretty simple. Is the U.S. response even working? It's the question that haunts any long-term military intervention, and it's no surprise that the answer is vague. Depends on who defines success. Abdullahi said there had been some short-term successes in terms of recapturing key towns, Shabab strongholds, things like that. But he said that from the people he's spoken to, he thinks that by not admitting to its faults, the U.S. military is countering its own objectives. It's a sentiment Chris shared too. If you stay silent, your enemies will exploit that silence. Somalia is a challenging environment, and there's no doubt that al-Shabaab fabricates claims of civilian harm. Part of the reason it's been able to do that is because for 12 years, the US was entirely silent about civilian deaths. I think what is particularly challenging for civilian communities is when militaries refuse to accept when things go wrong. And that is a rich recruiting ground for militant and terrorist organizations. Look, these people bomb you from 10,000 miles away and they don't even care. They won't even admit when they harm you. Getting it wrong can lose wars. We asked AFRICOM about all of this. A spokesperson said the U.S. military objective in Somalia is to help the government provide a safe and secure environment for the people of Somalia and deter organizations such as al-Shabaab. And they only use, quote, precision force at the request of or in support of the host government. They said that they're going to be publishing quarterly reports where they respond to allegations of civilian deaths. The first one came out in April. They also said the U.S. Department of Defense policy on compensating survivors of airstrikes is under revision. But they did not say whether the U.S. military has made contact with families or witnesses of civilians harmed by airstrikes in Somalia. Mohammed's family, from the beginning of the story, made it into that April report on civilian death allegations. Their case is listed as under review. Chris, you cover not just Somalia, but a whole host of countries in both Africa and the rest of the world where the U.S. is carrying out similar airstrikes. With that wide lens, how would you say the U.S. military in Somalia fits into its regional ambitions for Africa, or even the war on terror more broadly? Speaking personally, I'm not sure what the war on terror has become. They do feel like endless wars, so many of these conflicts that the United States is in. There's a grim joke at Air Wars that we begin monitoring multiple conflicts. We've yet to end the monitoring of a single conflict that we're tracking. 
if you look at the conflicts in places like Iraq, in Syria, in Libya, you know, the nature of war hasn't changed one jot. Civilians are still dying in, in terrifying numbers. Um, the US itself lost very few. So what we are actually seeing is a, is a transfer of risk from ourselves onto local fighters, onto local civilian populations. The nature of war hasn't changed. The nature of risk has. And we kid ourselves because we don't have, thank God, body bags coming home. We maybe think these wars are less damaging, less profound, and therefore need less of our attention. The body bags are often there, but they just don't leave the countries anymore. Mohammed Osman's relatives, they're the ones who are carrying that shift of risk. My mother-in-law, who was the eldest injured in that incident, she can't stand, she can't go to a lavatory or toilet. She can't walk. While the youngest one, who was about nine years, she has no physical injury right now, but she had a trauma. In the night, she wakes up screaming because of what happened that night. Mohammed says his brother-in-law is still in Jalip, and he was still asking himself one question. He could not understand and yet find answer to the question why he was the victim of that ASRI, as he was not Al-Shabaab or linked to this group. So why? This is what, what I need an answer for. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Amy Walters, Priyanka Tilvey, Ney Alvarez, Dina Kisbe, and me, Kevin Hurton. Alex Roldan was the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is the engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is the executive producer. Graylin Brashear is the head of audio. We'll be back on Friday.